I'm Carlos Race to Walk, and these are just some thoughts on a Sunday. And uh, what I do on these weekly updates is I just share a few thoughts, and then I also give an update of where we're at in our efforts to help some Afghan Christians in their immigration journey. Uh, they're currently in Pakistan, so I got always kind of share how I got involved in this because it's kind of a weird thing. Um, I started. Uh, teaching Bible studies in Pakistan via Zoom because my friend Mark Ritchie um, asked me to help him in his outreach. Uh, he started that in doing different Bible studies and speaking at conferences there via Zoom in 2020. I started helping him in 2021 and then in 2022 um, he started teaching some Afghan refugees who the Pakistani pastors that he had been uh, working with we're helping and then one thing led to another and the next thing you know we're getting involved in you know uh, helping them try to get uh, visas for Pakistan so they're not deported back to Afghanistan and looking at uh, immigration options and so it's just been kind of a wild ride since then and the other person that uh, Mark roped into this is his friend Don Shire and he has a ministry, DonshireMinistries.org, and Don agreed to uh, partner in this in that if anything is donated to his ministry at DonshireMinistries.org, and then the person designates Race to Walk, that the uh, that money will go to helping our people. So it's pretty nice because I just uh, send him a, uh, just tell him this is where the money needs to go and how much and to whom and what it's for. And I give him, you know, documentation afterwards and um, he takes care of all the reporting and everything. So that makes things easy. But um, speaking of Mark, uh, I mentioned last week that he, he's written this a few books, but I mentioned last week that two of his books we were going to be putting together in a collection that's not up yet uh he has not gotten me the files and part of the reason that he didn't get me the files is because he's actually not at home and uh i got a message on whatsapp this week from um just a few days ago actually from arlie lowen and uh who is a uh he has a ministry called premier ministries and he is a person that is kind of this is another crazy story i uh somebody that is I connected to really early on. Um, I consider him like my Twitter kid. He, I connected with him and he was getting me like all this information and context. We were trying to find, you know, outs and ways to, for immigration and things. And he came across an article that was, uh, someone was quoted in some Mennonite association about their efforts in trying to get churches to sponsor Afghans. And so I sent a message to that association, and the person that responded was Arlie. And Arlie is, I guess, is kind of like the Afghanistan connection for that um, that association of churches, I guess, how that worked. And so he responded to me, and he said that he knew Mark's mom, Winnie, because she had been in Afghanistan for and Pakistan and you know, doing humanitarian efforts there for years, so he knew her, and then uh, he had read Mark's book. So anyway, when Mark, in December, I took over because uh, Mark had some health issues, and he was pretty much, like, out of the picture, was not getting responses. 
uh, very rarely. I was getting responses, but it was very, very infrequent, and things were just kind of really chaotic, and just, you know, I, again, I'm sitting here in, um, you know, I just signed up to teach a Bible study. I don't, I don't know anything about international rescues, and so Arlie would be the person that I would send a message to asking him, okay, what do we do? How do we make this work? Is this right? I, you know, he would just kind of kind of clue me in on some things and he was a person because again Mark was like he wasn't available I didn't know about Don I didn't know Don at that point and uh, we didn't know how to get money there like significant money even just like uh, you know if there were issues even like sending um, sending money even through Western Union MoneyGram and Again, I this was at the beginning. I now know six ways to send money over there, but at the time I didn't. And uh, so Arlie connected us with another organization called Operation Mobilization, and they agreed to help us just in that one effort to um, help get them the funds to be able to get visas. So uh, anyway, so that's how I know Arlie. So anyway, I get a message, and, and since then, we've I all like sent him messages about different things so um, he's helped other other of our people out since then so I get a message from early and this is what he sends me and he sends me this picture this is so I'm not sure which side is which side so uh, Arlie has the glasses on is in the plaid shirt and the mark is in the blue shirt and uh, he sent me this picture and he said that they were at a conference in North Carolina, and it's for Christians, concerned Christians for Afghanistan, and there were several hundred people there, and about a hundred, um, I guess, Afghans and some NGOs, and uh, anyway, so they met up and they talked, so that was, that was kind of cool, that was, uh, I shared that with our groups, and they were really, they were really happy to see them, they, um, Arlie went and uh, did a, a not a conference, but kind of a meeting, sort of lecture a little bit at the um, at the house church, um, and uh, several of our people know Arlie, so that was pretty cool. But anyway, that was this week. But um, so the topic of today is um, the oh shoot, I have had this already ready. Just a second. The topic of today is God does not show partiality and there's a verse in Deuteronomy that says for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords he is a great God the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed and I was just thinking this week what an amazing thing that is I mean is that not oh shoot I just realized I was doing another the second yeah totally forgot I had done another stream or another recording and I forgot I changed my layout. But I was just thinking, is that not an awesome thing that God can't be bribed? He can't be bribed. You know, think about so how all the people that are just so corrupt that are supposed to be, you know, the people that are the leaders and the people who are supposed to be administering the justice system who are so corrupt. Case in point. Case in point, Dan Patrick, who gets a $3 million donation from a pro-Paxton PAC, and then immediately after that, he issues a gag order in Ken Paxton's impeachment hearing. This is Texas. Dan pa Patrick is our lieutenant governor and 
such a joke. Ken Paxton is our Attorney General. Can you believe that? He's been like indicted since almost since the day he was first elected, and people elected him again. I just don't even understand this. But anyway, this is the thing. God can't be bribed. God can't be bribed. And I think that that's a good reminder because I think sometimes people don't, um, Christians, Christians don't stop and consider that verse, that God doesn't show partiality. He does not show partiality. He is perfectly righteous and perfectly just. And the, you know, the word mishpat in Hebrew is actually, it's, it's a word that means both justice and judgment. And it depends on you, on which side of that uh, you're going to fall. Are you going to receive justice because you admit you're wrong and receive that uh, cleansing redemption from Jesus? Or are you going to stay stubborn and stuck in your sin and receive judgment? Which is it? But we seem to think that we can do whatever we want and that we don't have to align to God's judgment and we can just go our own way and God's just going to be totally fine with it. And that is not okay. That's not okay. And we were... Um, I'm going to get into some examples of that, of just how hypocritical we can be sometimes. So moving on from this, um, this is going to tie in, I promise. So the other kind of cool thing this week is I was, uh, I go through these phases where I never used to watch YouTube. And then when I started doing YouTube videos, I thought I should probably like watch them and see kind of like what the thing is and, uh, what people are talking about. But I go through like, um, phases where I'll watch different things. And I, for one, at one point I was watching uh, videos by Soft White Underbelly. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a guy, photographer. He used to be a commercial photographer. And, but now he goes and he records or he interviews people, usually people like on, I think it's Skid Row in like, I don't know exactly, but in, in an area in, I think Los Angeles where it's really, uh, there's a lot of homeless and a lot of, um, you know, crime and uh, drugs in the area. And so he will interview them and just let them tell their story. And he really puts um, a face on the person rather than just seeing them as a problem. And, you know, he's really giving a voice to the voiceless. And so you, some of them, you can see that they, they don't see it out. They don't if there's any hope they see you know you hear their story of how they got to where they're at sometimes he has stories of people who have come out of on the other side um so they're usually really interesting uh personally i can only watch a few at a time but there was one so his videos come across my feed quite a bit and there was one that uh was this this video with the screenshot is a man that said, I was held captive by the Taliban. And I was like, what, what is that? So I watched the video and the interview and this man's name is Jerry Van Dyke. And he told the story about how, you know, he was like back in the, uh, I think it's 60s, 70s, you know, he was going all over Europe and um, went to Afghanistan and fell, fell in love with the country and, um, just made a really strong connection with the people. And after 9-11, you know, he, he had actually met um, and made friends with some people in the Hikani, I may not be saying it right, uh, tribe. And they are actually the, uh, the pretty pro predominant in the Taliban now. So, um, 
after 9-11, uh, he went back to Afghanistan and he um, was captured, his, uh, he was betrayed by, um, and he was captured. And so he tells that story. And I can't remember, it's a really interesting video. I, on my website at racetowalk.org, about a day or so after, I try to get it done sooner than later, but you know how life goes. But uh, I will always have an article for each um, live stream. And I put all everything that I'm talking about, all the resources and links and videos and everything in that article. And so I'll link to that video there. But he uh, he said something in the video, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something about Pakistan. And the thing that I've been struggling with as I've been as I've been involved in this is I just have not understood why why there's so much hostility by the Pakistan government against the Afghans. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out, um, so, hey, so this is a great question. So let me, let me finish this part of the story and then I will, I'll answer your question. Okay. So, um, what was I saying? Oh, Pakistan. I couldn't figure out why, uh, why they were so hostile because after 2021, um, at the end of 2021, the Pakistan government stopped allowing Afghans to be, uh, to register as refugees, um, in Pakistan, and they used to be able to, because there had been Afghan refugees in Pakistan for a long time. You know, the war has been going on there for a long time, um, and there's been a lot of turmoil there since you know, the uh, late 70s. So, um, there have been Afghan refugees there, and in the past, Pakistan used to allow them to register as refugees, and that would allow them to go to school, to work, to get housing to get medical treatment, uh, they wouldn't have to worry about being deported, but they cut that off. And then also about the end of 2021, they also stopped allowing the, um, the UNHCR to, office there to issue refugee certifications. And it's been, it was bad before, but this year, 2023, it's been really, really bad for them, for the Afghans. So I couldn't understand why that was. And I, I've been trying to figure out what the deal is. I've been listening to, you know, episodes, back episodes of Generation Jihad, just listening to one after another. I had to kind of slow down the pace on that because I could tell that it was affecting me mentally. They say this isn't like a happy, a happy topic and they're right. There's just almost only so much I can handle at a certain time. And I've been listening to that, to the host there, um, you know, they've been, they've been talking about the situation in Afghanistan since shortly after the Doha agreement. So I couldn't figure it out. I've sent emails to people who supposedly have worked with, um, you know, been in, involved in Pakistan and U.S. relations, didn't get a response from them. And I thought, I'm just going to ask him. I'm just going to send him an email and ask him if um, he uh, if he can tell me the answer. And he says, so surprise, surprise, um, 
So this is his book, Captive, that he wrote about when he was attacked, right? Or not to attack, but when he was captured. So he sends me a response. I, I send him an email, and I get a response, like, right away. And he tells me, I just, what did I tell you this? This is so crazy. This, he is actually, knows Zalmay Khalilzad. He said, we started the Friends of Afghanistan. This is a part of the email that he told me. Um, and Zalmay Khalilzad is the guy that wrote the Doha Agreement along with Mike Pompeo. Is that not the wildest thing? So anyway, he, in that interview with, on South White Underbelly, he was going back to Afghanistan just right after that. So I don't know like if he's there now or he went and came back or, or what. But anyway, in the book or in his email, in his reply, he sends me, uh, he s recommends that I read this book um, Without Borders, the Hikini Network um, and the Road to Kabul. And this just came out in December 2022. I have not read it yet. I just got his email in a, a couple days ago. And uh, he, <laughs> when I was reading the reviews of the book, one of the reviews, it wasn't positive. He said, this is just like a bunch of essays. This is a mess. I had to I feel like I had to get like a spreadsheet to tell who's who. And I'm thinking, yep, that's the way it is. That's the way it is, because that's why I feel when I listen to the G Generation Jihad network, it's almost like you do have to draw draw a map and take notes and, you know, define who's who and draw connections between the two, because it, it is literally that confusing about what's going on. And when I was reading his email and his response, it's not that I understand all of it, but I understand some of the things he said make me understand it a little better. And the reality is it's kind of the same thing as what's going on with our school board locally. Like I had did an update a few months ago, about a month or so ago, I guess, about how our school board prepared me to deal with the Taliban. But it's the same. It's like these, everybody has their own agenda and they're working to their own end. And everybody like, just for example, he was saying that when the U.S. gave funds to Pakistan, who then funneled it to the Mujahideen, I'm probably not saying that right, there were seven different groups, and there were certain, you know, the Pakistanis favored certain of those groups. And so there was partiality in that. And so it's, that's part of the reason that it makes things so difficult, is that things are supposed to be a certain way, or you're supposed to be able to do things in a certain way, and it doesn't work that way for everybody. So a lot of the people that are in my group are Hazara, they're a minority, um, and it, they're, you know, they've been um, attacked just for being Hazara, besides the fact that they're Shia and Taliban are Sunni. So it's just, it's, it just kind of gave me a little bit better understanding. He said that he was um, hired by the Gates Foundation to go and promote polio vaccination in Afghanistan. He said that uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan are the only countries in the world where it's still endemic. And uh, Pakistan put up a lot of resistance to it. They didn't, because he said they don't want Afghan children to live and be healthy. And I, it's just, he also said that the, t the Pakistanis are in control of the Taliban. And 
don't know about that. And it's that was one thing that I was a little, like, I don't know. That was kind of weird. But um, anyway, so that was a sweet. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the next part of it. But um, going back to your question, so you asked a serious question: Why are you a Christian? So. Um, in the beginning, you know, I became a Christian because I, uh, my family has been Christian, but I saw, you know, the reality of, you know, um, Jesus in my mom's life. And I went to a private Christian school. That's a whole other story from um, third through ninth grade. And it was very fundamentalist. And so if it were just my experience, if that was my only exposure to Christianity, I probably would have said no, because that was really um, the message I got from that school and the church that it was under, it was like, no this, no that, no, 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 no. But, um, and they were very harsh, very harsh, not to me, because I was, you know, always a good kid and I was smart and they always treated me well, always. But I saw that not everybody was treated the same way. You know, so there were some people that were treated very harshly. But, um, again, that's showing partiality. But, um, you know, I saw in my mom's life the reality of it. Like she and my grandma, they would pray and literally the earth would move. And so that, um, that for me was, you know, I saw that it was real. I saw that in her life. And so for myself, I feel like, you know, I've been a believer for a long time, but I wasn't always at the point where I integrated it so much with my life. I mean, it's not that I didn't believe, but it's like if you know Jesus is uh, is who He says He is, and if the power of the Holy Spirit is living within us, and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living within us, then what does that mean? I didn't. I don't think I always really um, saw that in my day to day, and so it was actually during my divorce. Um, before this, I had been getting to, to a point where, you know, like, I would pray, you know, but if things were really important, I would call my mom and I would ask her to pray for me because, or the situation, because I just felt like her prayers worked better than mine. And so I was trying to learn more about prayer and like trying to, I guess, figure out what the not the trick, but the thing. Like, what is it that I need to know? What is it that I need to learn? Is there like a process? How do I do this? Is this a, um, so you uh, yeah, asked, so are you a Christian? Because your mom was a good example. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning of it. You know, it was not just that she was a good example, but, um, now, I know a lot of people say they became a Christian because they're afraid of hell. That wasn't for me. You know, I just I just saw what she had, and that's what I wanted. But as I was saying, as I was, um, no problem. Thanks for the question. Um, as I saw that, you know, as I was, um, I wanted to have that same thing. I wanted to be able to pray and know God would answer my prayers. You know, I wanted to have that same relationship. And I was going through, I was going through my divorce. It was literally the darkest time of my life. And when I say darkest, I don't mean just like 
heavy emotionally. Like there was almost like this physical darkness. Like it was just so dark. And, but at the same time, I don't think I've ever felt like the presence of God as real as I did then. It was like, it was almost like the realest thing in my life. God was just there for me. And it wasn't anything that I did because it wasn't about me or um, that I was praying more. It was just that he knew that I needed him. And there's a verse that says, you know, God draws near to the brokenhearted and he rescues those whose spirit are crushed. And that's what it was. And that's really, I think, kind of the beginning of, you know, me saying um, that it's not, God, this is an idea. You know, it's, he didn't just come and die on the cross and so, and go through everything so we could talk about him. It's so that we could experience his presence and his peace. And, um, so anyway, um, that's your question because I, I believe it because it's real, because God is real, because Jesus is the Messiah, because he is the person that who brings peace. And, um, that I, there's just time after time when, you know, God has come through for me. You know, when I prayed and he's had, he's given me an answer. Um, sometimes I don't get the answers. And then looking back, you know, I see how even sometimes in his silence, it's an answer and it's a protection. The things that I thought should have worked out and didn't, um, that it was, he was doing it for my good. So anyway, that's why, <laughs> that's why, because it's true. He is true. And, um, so anyway, but thanks for asking the question, but going back to, uh, what I was talking about, um, partiality and, uh, not, uh, not that God does not show partiality. So one of the recommendations that Jerry Van Dyke, uh, suggested that I read was an interview from 1998 with, I am not going to say this guy's name, right? It's, um, oh shoot, what is his name? I don't know. He was a national security advisor to Carter. What is it? It's Zeg Bignew Brzezinski. And in this article, there, there were other people that had already came out and said that the Carter administration had started funding Mujahideen in Afghanistan six months before the Soviets invaded. And um, Brzezinski confirmed that. And he said that, yes, it was a secret agreement and that um, he told Carter that doing that would induce a Soviet military intervention. And so the question was, despite this risk, you were an advocate of this covert action, but perhaps you yourself desired this Soviet entry into the war and thought to provoke it. And he said, well, it isn't quite that. We didn't push the Russians to intervene, but we knowingly increased the probability that they would. So they were trying to manipulate the Russians into invading Afghanistan because it was basically revenge 
that they felt like if the, the Soviets got involved in Afghanistan, then it would be like their Vietnam and then it would bring them down. And okay, yeah, you can't see the last line there, but he had no regret about it at all because of what happened. So this is in 1998. And at the time of 1998, the Soviets had pulled out, but the, and the Taliban were in power and we knew how horrible the Taliban were, but he's thinking it's great. It's all this instability because it, Afghanistan was actually a pretty stable and almost progressive country before the, um, you know, that started this in the late seventies, there were the, there was a monarchy and then there was a, um, kind of a, a coup that they set up a, a, a republic and they were, um, and then there was another one, but they were the republic, they were actually communists. So there was this, this is in the Cold War, and so there was this tension between the U.S. and the USSR, and Afghanistan's kind of there in the middle, and so Brzezinski is like saying, yeah, do, if we do this, then the Soviets will get involved. They're not going to win there. They knew it was like quicksand getting involved in Afghanistan, and it will bring them down. So the thing is, at this point, this leads to a whole bunch of other things in that Yes, the USSR did bring them down, but it also completely fragmented the Afghan society. You have, it also gave rise to this religious extremism. Uh, the Taliban took power after that. Al-Qaeda Al was in Afghanistan and, and uh, they, and then 9-11 happened. So then after he's all thinking this is great, and then after that, those words become a problem because then you can see, okay, well, this led to all of this, the seeds of this manipulation from back in, was it 1978, 1979, actually ended up in the attack of 9-11. And so then we get into all of this, this happens, and we get into Afghanistan. And it's actually that, um, that statement is pretty controversial. There are people that are denying that he actually said that now. And there were, I guess, like in 2010, 2012, there were a couple of politicians that said, no, 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 that wasn't true. That wasn't true. We didn't, we didn't, we funded the Mujin in response to the Soviet invasion. We didn't, you know, precipitate that. And then there was another thing that was published in 2020, like this guy saying, no, 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 I read all these things and no, 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 he didn't mean that. That was taken out of context. Okay. The guy wrote this book called The Grand Chessboard. He saw all these people as all these countries just as pawns in his game of manipulation. This is his book. This is what he titled it. Yes, he did. They did that. We did that. He saw it as a way to manipulate, thought it would work out in the U.S.'s favor, and it ended up in 9-11 and a mess that we're still in today and devastation and destruction for millions of people because they're playing their little games. And so this is the thing. This morning in Bible study, we had, we're in Jeremiah, 
And we're in this, you know, it's talking about, you know, Jeremiah's warning. God's warning people, his people to turn back. And they're not. And we're also in our church, we're doing this um, Master Life class. It's like a discipleship. It's like four sec segments. We're going to be starting segment two in a little while in my class. And I go to a big church, and we have a lot of people that are members, maybe not so much in my campus, but in other campuses that are bigwigs. You know, politicians, Dan Patrick's a member. <laughs> I mean, just a lot of people, a lot of the manipulators. And so we're talking about this story, and this whole thing is about sanctification. And I think, what Bible study is Dan Patrick in? Like, is he listening to any of this at all? Or does he just does he just go and say, okay, yeah, I, I'm showing up here, but I'm not paying attention to anything else? Because I, I don't understand, like, how you can sit and listen to this and not make any connection to your own actions that this is not okay. Like I said, he took uh, a $3 million donation and then put a gag order. Let me see if I can find it on um, anybody talking about it. And let's see. Okay, yeah, and so then the other thing that happened this week, in relation to that, so this is our Attorney General is going through an impeachment trial. There was a professor at uh, Texas A&M that made a comment about saying how it was inappropriate for Dan Patrick to take that bribe. And so there was a student in the lecture where she was saying that, whose mom is like some big wig, complained to her mom, who took it up with Patrick. And so now the, the professor at Texas A&M has been fired. It's like, okay, so how is that not showing partiality? How is that, you know, is, are you saying that, so you're firing people now that are even speaking out about what is right and wrong, or what is corruption? <laughs> like, how do you not, you know, but all these people are, are people that think that they're, uh, they're Christians, right? And it's like, I don't know what Bible you're reading, or, you know, you think that when you're, uh, whatever you do is okay. And that's basically what the Jews felt like. They, they felt like they were God's chosen people that they were the ones that had the special status with God and they thought that they could thought they could ignore the warnings and that nothing else nothing bad would happen to them God gave them warnings and they ignored it and so they if you read especially the minor prophets especially Amos it's a condemnation of the, the rich and the wealthy the people in charge that are exploiting the poor and the vulnerable God warned them, they ignored it, and then God turned them over to their enemies, and they experienced the same thing that they were inflicting on their fellow people. And so, this is what we have done as a nation. We, manipulating things, part, probably partly out of fear, but, you know, thinking that these other people and these other nations were just ours to play games with. We manipulated the situation and the result was 9-11, and the result is this uh, explosion in uh, 
extremism and this sentiment against us. But also it's not just external, it's also internal. Because um, if you go and you look and saying like, we, we like to think like we're the best of the best and we believe it and people believe our hype, like all the people that are almost everybody in my, um, my Bible study with my Afghans, they want to come to the U.S. So that's their first choice. And I've told them, we're like number 21 in the quality of life among countries. Uh, Canada's number three, Germany's number seven. You know, if you can get into some point, one of these countries that has better quality of life, do it because things will be easier for you. It's get here, it's gonna be hard. It's not gonna be easy. You know, our, we have a lot of sizzle, but our substance is so slowly dwindling. And I came across an article that, oh, what? this is not what I wanted, okay. So there's an article that has talked about how, as our democracy has been eroded, that there are large portions of the United States that are really the equivalent of developing nations. And we have not cared about how our actions are affecting other people. And so now it's coming home to roost. And it's especially coming home to roost in Texas because it's, it's already, that is absolutely true here. So other crazy story of this week, um, so Greg Abbott, they, they passed this, it, he took over the Houston uh, Independent School District, took it over, got rid of the, the elected school board, and put in this guy, Mike Miles, and this week what he did was he fired the librarians and he's making libraries detention centers. And as this person points out, so basically, you know, the, the problem kids are going to be warehoused there. So, you know, they're not a problem. And usually what it is, and she's right, it's, you know, kids that don't have breakfast are going through trouble at home, you know, or they need, need some extra help. You know, if, they're too, if it's too much work, we're just going to, you know, shuttle them off, hide them away. Who needs to read? Who needs libraries? Let's just put them in this, in this spot where they can't bother anybody. So, again, we have, this is the way we've treated other countries, and now this is the way we are being treated ourselves. And we are, um, most of us are the ones that are being manipulated and used. So this is a story about, um, from the Texas Tribune, again, I'll have links in my, um, in the article on my website at racetowalk.org. So you can read the full thing, but this is talking about how, uh, you know, Tim Dunn and uh, Ferris Wilkes has uh, just really overshadowed um, and bought out Texas politics. Um, the Wilkeses are just really kind of ruthless and cutthroat. And the, the irony of me, to me is that I've, I've read, I've been reading about him for Ferris Wilkes for a long time. He is a literal heretic. I mean, he's, all these Christians are, taking his money and doing his bidding. But Wilkes is, when I say heretic, I mean a literal Trinity denying heretic, not like, you know, what the Thebros call a heretic and that they play Hillsong at their church. I mean, this guy is a literal heretic. It's like he has his own little cult and his own little church and he's buying up half the West. And so it's like he's, uh, it's, 
they they just uh, they want things their way, right? And this is looking at what Greg Abbott has done in this legislative session. I, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it really feels like he's been given an ultimatum to take out public education in this session or else, because it is a full on hardcore, you know, full on uh, uh, attack against public education so they're trying to put they've been trying to push vouchers that's like the front end attack but in the back end what they did is they are touting out off that they uh, lowered the or increase the homestead exemption so that will lessen the taxable amount on property taxes okay that sounds great but they more than doubled it and um the tax assessments are what the tax rate is the, the schools collect their property taxes off of and they've issued bonds based on projected property tax rates so from what i read i think it has to go before the voters in november i hope people catch a clue because if they pass that then you kiss public education goodbye because with all the bonds that have been issued even the bonds even the districts that are responsible it will completely implode public school districts it's just but this is the thing you know it's like the people who have don't care about everybody else you know they want theirs and everybody else's and they don't care they don't care they're just you know all the rest of us are just there to be manipulated like we did not care about the afghans and our manipulations Ferris Wilkes, he doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about you. He just, he just wants his, he just wants it all. He wants all the marbles and he wants his way, his heretical, culty way. That's what he wants. And what he says, he has politicians bought and paid for what he says goes. So anyway, oh, this is another kicker talking about partiality. So this is an article, uh, there was a whistleblower that came out that the um, as an advisor to Paxton was sending him texts and she was oh my gosh she was actually I read through the document she was actually saying that he shouldn't have um, he shouldn't have taken action against Paxton that he should have gone to his, him privately as a fellow Christian okay so this isn't a church matter this is like a criminal matter Paxton's issues are criminal matters. They're not church matters. So <laughs> she's basically saying like this, trying to pull the Matthew 18 card on him. It's like, dude, like you, what else does it say? How about Ephesians 5.11, which says, have nothing to do with the works of darkness rather than expose them. Or there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 5 that says that it's not my job to judge outsiders, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you that's how you're supposed to deal with it. It's not cover up and deny. You're supposed to get rid of and expose evil. So anyway, we just, um, it's very disturbing to me that we have all of these issues in the U.S. and it seems like Christians are focused on stuff that really isn't, it's just minor things. And it's like, how about you clean up the church first, make sure that you're all good before you go worrying about everybody else. But this was a very um, 
uh, great quote by Diane Langberg, and she was saying it, systemic abuse occurs when a system, regardless, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but regardless of what it is, and it's when they're concerned about, they look out for themselves rather than the people that they're supposed to be looking out for. And, and that is what God said to you know, the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament. They said they were faithless shepherds. Um, you know, Jesus called the religious leaders wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, they pretend like they're religious, but they're not really. And uh, so while people are allowing themselves to be manipulated and distracted from the real issues, then um, our own well-being is being destroyed and undermined. And this is a, another thing of that Texas is doing. Um, a lot of, uh, so we have like 90 to 100 degree heat in, in Texas right now. There's no air conditioning in jails. And besides that, they're, they've increased the price of water 50%. That's disgusting. That's absolutely disgusting. You know, Jesus actually condemns people that don't, uh, he said, you don't visit me in prison. This is in Matthew 25, you know, when he talks about, you know, the sheep and the goats, people who will be welcomed into heaven, and those who will be, you know, condemned to hell. Like the people who don't care for those who are um, the poor and the needy. Yeah. So these people are at our mercy and are basically torturing them. And so do we care about that? Is anybody saying anything? I don't know. Abbott is, <laughs> he, he literally has like Operation Lone Star. He basically has his own army. And this is just talking about how he spends like all this money on this army attacking defenseless refugees. And, you know, Texas is one of the poorest states in the nation. But this is where we, we put our focus. And really, when it comes down to it, Texas is, I, I mean, are we really part of a democracy anymore? Because Texas is, uh, Greg Abbott is basically like an undeclared dictator. He literally, they pass a law in the Texas legislature eliminating the Harris County Elections Department. Can you believe that? I mean, it's just like, when does it end and when does it stop? And when does it go too far? The people don't say anything. I mean, obviously, for some people, it never gets too far. It's like if they don't get what they want, they're going to throw a fit. And Rudy Giuliani just made a confession this week that he lied about the election fraud. They knew about it. And do people still believe it? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if they still, I don't know if they still believe it. It's just... It's like you have to come to the point, are you more concerned about your own stuff? I mean, this is the thing. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. But if you say you're a Christian, you're saying that you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, that uh, God is God is your guide and your judge. But if you're not acting, are, are you really seeking after his will? Or are you just doing your own thing and then distorting his word to make it seem like you're excused because you're not? You're not excused. So, anyway, um, enough about that. Now, we're going to go on to Afghanistan news and just a reminder that the Afghans are terrorists and thugs. So, this is just an article link to an article. I'll link to it on my site. It was just talking about all the human rights abuses Afghans have taken into power, particularly against women. 
you know, I realize that there's some people in the United States that don't really even care about that. But, you know, this is the thing. It's a uh, half of the population, more than half, because there are a lot of widows um, in Afghanistan because you know, the country hasn't been at war for years. But uh, if you're a woman, you're almost illegal. That's basically what it is. Other big news in Afghanistan this past week, there was a young man and woman who had been uh, condemned to be stoned because they had a relationship. Now, I was reading some of the comments on Twitter and some they were talking about adultery. So nothing I've read said that they were married to other people, just said that they had a relationship and they escaped. He was Pashtun, she was Hazara. I don't know if that had something to do with it because usually there's a lot of tribal, you know, animosity between the two. Um, not knowing anything else, my guess would be that there was probably some six-year-old Taliban higher up that wanted her for his third or fourth wife or something, and then she ran off with somebody else. That would be my guess. I have no idea if it's true or not. The last I heard that that had been uh, postponed, that they had, because there had been all this public outcry that they hadn't done that. But I don't know what's happened to that couple since then. Uh, there was another video that I did share, but I went back to look for it, and um, it must have been deleted. There was a video of Taliban beheading um, an older man, and, and uh, I don't even know what he did. It could be anything. You know, it just, you look at somebody wrong, you know, and they, they, they'll go after you. Uh, there was a UN report came out that said that Taliban had infiltrated, uh, not Taliban, the Al-Qaeda had infiltrated the upper levels of the Taliban. It's not infiltration. They knew this from the get-go. Taliban have been supporting Al-Qaeda. They know this. I mean, it's not infiltration. It's by design. Other ridiculous stupidity, and this is this is how much this authoritarianism and control. This is how ridiculous it, it gets because when you start trying to control someone, it's never enough. So, this I guess is a video of um, them debating about whether or not people should wear ties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, this is a, if you watch, go and watch this uh, video, this is an interview with a man who is selling his daughter into slavery because um, he has debts and, um, you know, this is the, the uh, depths that they've come to because of just the horrific uh, conditions that we left to fester in Afghanistan. And you may say, well, the Afghan people should be able to stand up for themselves. Okay, you know, there are some that are, but we're also giving the Taliban $80 million a month. I think that's the number. So we're funding them. We gave them our, we left all our equipment. Um, we left our data so they know who worked with us and what they could do. Um, we left the biometric scanning devices. So we've stacked the deck as far as we can to um, for anybody that was would be standing up against the Taliban. But still they are. 
there, there are groups that are standing up against the Taliban. So I mentioned last week um, that there was a former, there was like a commander in the Taliban army that had defected to the NRF, which is a national resistance front. And then there was like a group, an underground gr group of women that the Taliban was going after. I Don't ask me what that was, but it does seem like there are more efforts to, um, you know, overthrow the authoritarians, but we do nothing to facilitate that. We actually support and prop up the Taliban. This is another, uh, this is another um, tweet from this week. Um, this, this lady was sharing that there was a baby that um, had to be taken to the hospital and they had nothing. The hospital in Afghanistan had absolutely nothing to help them and to treat them with. And uh, this is a video of a, an Ashura procession. The Taliban started attacking. I looked this up and it's a celebrate. It's kind of like a, um, you know how Catholics have days for saints and celebrations for saints. This is kind of similar. It's like, I think it's Muhammad's son or grandson or something that that is the um that's what it's in in memory of and i did not check to see if this is a shia uh observance because that i, I don't understand why they would attack a religious observance if it wasn't shia so yeah they were shooting into the crowd and kill people so um then moving on to U.S. efforts. So this is a, um, a quote from Beth Bailey. She's uh, the co-host of the Afghanistan Project, and she did an interview with a former, someone who had served in Afghanistan. They were talking about the moral injury of Afghanistan. That, like It's not just you know, going through and being in war, but also you know seeing injustice there and then coming back and feeling like, was it even worth it? You know, was everything that we went through worth it? And um, so I guess they're going to be doing a series on that. So to add to that feeling of futility, I'm sure the Afghan Adjustment Act was uh, represented to Congress and uh, Tom Cotton of Arkansas is blocking it. So uh, I don't know what the outcome of that is going to be. And I really don't even understand the point of blocking the Afghan Adjustment Act. It just allows like, all these people who are in limbo um, to have a path to citizenship and uh, make it a little cleaner because our immigration system is a complete and total mess. But for some reason, he's blocking it. So this is a couple of updates from Stephen Jensen. He's writing a book on Afghanistan, but he was just saying that you know, it wasn't, um, it was our fatalism that um, we just told her, like, told ourselves that there was no point in being in Afghanistan. Now, one of the things that Generation Jihad, has, the co-host on Generation Jihad, said that we actually pulled out in 2013 to 2014, that we hardly had any troops in Afghanistan in 2020. It was more like just to kind of help stabilize. So we, we pulled out way back then. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with it our sense it was our sense of fatalism i kind of think that it was more about um not fatalism but maybe we didn't 
have the right um, right intent to begin with. Like we should be going there to, yes, obviously we don't want um, we don't want terrorists uh, to have a haven, but also we should be concerned about helping a country that we go into create a stable environment where you know their own people can flourish and if we don't see that as an agenda then you know it's easy to bail when things get hard which is what we did we didn't think that there was any point because we had some wrong objectives i think but i don't think it was a loss i mean i think that you know i'm connected with a lot of people who you know there are everybody that's like under 30 you know they grew up in a time when the Taliban weren't in control they you know there are women who were able to go to school and to learn and to have a role in society that they wouldn't have been able to if the Taliban had been in control like they were you know when we went in in 2001 and you know the people are the point the people are the point and if we don't understand that, then it's easy to get discouraged. But I can tell you that it wasn't a waste. You know, there are not only are, you know, there, you know, I meet with them weekly. You know, they, they are um, competent and resourceful. And, you know, even with everything working against them, you know, they don't give up and they're working on ways and to, find a way out and to pr improve their situation. And you, you have to, the, the fact that NATO forces were there for 20 years, it gave people a space to learn and gave them a different perspective from what they would have seen just with the Taliban. And it wasn't a waste. And I don't think, you know, I, I think that there, there was a poll a few months ago that most Afghans don't believe that the U.S. went in with good intentions. But there are people that do believe that. But the thing is that right now we're betraying them. Like we told them that we would, we would give them um, a path to immigration here, that we would stand by them when we didn't and we're not. And we're not processing the applications and we're dragging our feet at getting them out. And we can do better than that. I mean, they believe in us. They believe what we told them. And so we should be, we should be standing by what we said and do what we said we would do. So um, this is another update. It, he was just saying, you know, the Taliban, they're really not as strong as they seem like they are. You know, we just believe they're propaganda. They're good at propaganda. Good at propaganda. So uh, the other thing, this is an interesting um, series of uh, tweets that, like we think that we take in all these refugees, but Lark uh, Escobar, she is on Twitter at Lark Abroad. She said we took only a little bit over twenty-five thousand refugees last year, and the countries around Afghanistan taken in millions, and we just seem like we're so put upon. We think we've done so much, so so much, when really we haven't. And it's these poor countries like Pakistan who are bearing the brunt of the impact of our actions. So they, they get all these refugees escaping Afghanistan because the Taliban want to kill our allies and Pakistan is bearing the burden of it and we make it seem like we've done all this.
and we haven't. And so while that's going on, they're waiting to be resettled, they're waiting for a way out, and they're being deported back to um, Afghanistan from Pakistan, and that's true. Other thing this week is just, I got another message from somebody that's in Islamabad. He knows, has two friends, or two, two families that went from Brazil to Mexico, and they're in Mex when they sent me a message, they were in Mexico City, and they were asking for help. And I don't really know what to tell them other than give them a link to the CB1 border app and uh, CB1 app, which is the app that they have to make or use to make an appointment at the border for asylum. I don't know what to tell them other than to give them that link and to use it to make an appointment because they try to cross the border you know, um, who knows what's going to happen. Actually, on Tuesday, that uh, that act that had gone in place in May, where Biden basically put a ban on all asylum, unless if they applied for asylum first in the first country they came to and were denied or made an appointment on that app, that was struck down. So as of today, like, Let's just say if they cross the border illegally, um, I don't think they would be deported. I don't know. But who knows? Who knows? It's it's hard to say. But apart from that, I think that it that hadn't been struck down. And if they had crossed the border illegally, I think they would have been deported back to Brazil where they had gotten humanitarian parole. But um, I've mentioned this a couple of times before. It infuriates me when people talk about open borders because if there are, please tell me. Please tell me where they are because I know people that need that. But um, when people say that, I'm pretty sure that the people in the media know that's a lie, but they're doing it to manipulate their audience. But what happens is people in these other countries actually believe that that's true, that there are open borders, and so they come and they put their life at risk and put themselves in a big mess. So, you know, as far as their legal status. So, anyway, I'll have to see what is happens with that. I'll have to follow up with them and see what the deal is. Um, so, oh, and this is the other thing that Lark had posted about. She's just poking, posting that, you know, it costs the U.S. government about $15,000 to resettle a refugee, but that refugees actually generate an average of $21,000 more in taxes. So the way she put that out, she didn't have a link to where she was citing it from, but um, I don't know if that's in the first year or what, but, uh, you know, it was just showing that we gain from refugees. They, they are a blessing and a benefit to us when we take in refugees and immigrants. And then to follow up with that, she was saying that uh, just even um, a 10% increase in refugee resettlement would boost the U.S. economy by $1.4 billion. And that it would continue to be um, a boost to the economy. So what's the point of trying to blocking immigration? There is no point other than it's a convenient tool to um, manipulate people politically. That's really the only reason. So, uh, and then the people that are in dire situations are the ones that are paying the cost for it. So 
anyway, so that's just a little bit of what was going on in Afghanistan as far as our people. Um, I mentioned last week we were working on some stuff. I was thinking it was going to take a little bit of time to get going. Uh, no, uh, my people do not let grass grow under their feet. They just got going. So what we're doing is we have we have two um, English schools going on. So um, one of the translators is he's taught language classes in the past um, at a language center. What we've been stressing to them, it's really important for them to uh, work on English proficiency because there are several of the, the paths that I'm coming across are, uh, it requires English language. So Canada, um, the expedited refugee um, immigration path that recently opened, it requires a proficiency in either English or French. And the, there's a German program that um, requires English or German. So we've been working on that. Also, you know, just when they get here, it's um, they need to really hit the ground running. You know, it's going to be a lot to rebuild a life. So um, everybody needs to be able to integrate and um, get going. So that's what we're working on. And so one of the problems has been that. I guess the language centers in Islamabad, where they are, they do have them, but they are Urdu speakers teaching English. So if they're Afghans speaking, you know, either Dari or Pashto, um, they are have a teacher who speaks a language that they don't know and trying to learn a language that they don't know. So it makes it kind of difficult. So one of our translators started um, teaching um, a class, and uh, we funded one of those classes, but he actually added two. And he has a waiting class with 20 more people that want to start the classes. And so they meet daily, and I was talk he was showing, giving me his list of all the people that are in the class, and he has an attendance sheet, and I was telling telling him that, you know, we need to do some assessments, like when they start and, you know, where they're at so we know, like, how close they are to be able to um, go into some of these programs. And one of the things I'm going to do is, like, when they get to a certain point where they can, like, communicate a little bit with English speakers, I want to get groups of people to work with them just so they can, you know, have a little bit more practice speaking English. But he was... Uh, showing me this and he said that he said everybody is you know they're working really hard and they just have fun and there's a lot of laughing and and uh, that made me happy because it's like you know it's just it's hope you know it's like okay they're working forward you know they're working towards something and so that's one thing oh shoot i didn't i was gonna do a screenshot of it the other thing is we have a another another one of the translators, they want to start a physical school and then also have an online option with that too. And this, so I was talking to him about that and they, they had some people, they did this whole executive summary and uh, had the money that they think that it, they would um, need to start it. And he said, well, I'm going to talk, I, I said, well, what about registering a, an NGO because if you do that, then, so the deal with, like, when you donate from, if a U.S. person wants to donate, you can only donate and deduct 
if you donate to a U.S.-based charity that has been designated as a charity by the IRS, like with 501c3 designation. So if you donate straight over to somebody directly, you can't deduct that. But an, a U.S.-based charity can donate to a, an NGO in another country, and that's actually what they recommend rather than what the IRS recommends rather than setting, trying to set up your own NGO in a foreign country is to partner with a, a domestic uh, charity. So we were talking a little bit about that. I said then we would be able to get donations there, and I think that's really important because Afghans in general are in a very precarious situation. It's not like they have a lot of extra funds to do, you know, uh, to do classes. And he's like, okay. And, and so I said, okay, well, I know somebody because this is somebody else that had contacted us connected in with us. He used to be an attorney with the former Republic. And so I've been, we've been talking a little bit and um, he's actually the person that has supposed to be getting a referral to the UK. So I sent a message to him and I said, this is what they're thinking about doing. Do you have any advice for them? Do you know anybody that can help them in Pakistan with registration and any guidance on, you know, any requirements that they need to have to have an NGO? And he said, oh, okay, so he's going to check on it. And so he replies to me, and he said that he had an education-related um, NGO in Afghanistan. And with very minimal registration, he can register that to operate in Pakistan since it was all, had already formed in Afghanistan. So we already have that. That's already set up. And they've already had a meeting with... Um, a, an edu Inspire Pakistan, which can provide scholarships to universities and colleges, but they have to have the UNICEF share designation, which most Afghans don't have. So, but anyway, they're they're already partnering with different educational providers there, and um, so yeah, that's going. And they they have a a flyer already made up. That's I was going to show them that. So anyway, it's called Logos Lingua Academy, but that's what we're working on. So if you want to donate, to do like any scholarships for some of the Afghans to learn English, um, you can go to racewalk.org, select, or not, no, no, go to donshireministries.org, select racewalk for $25. That will cover the tuition for one person for three months. So anyway, so that's what we're doing. We are getting them prepped and ready. And I can't remember if I shared this last week. One of the guys who's a dentist has already um, has already uh, found out that he qualifies for the that Canadian expedited program, but he's working on uh, studying for the IELTS exam. I think I said this last week. So there's that. But then I was talking to uh, one of them who they some of them zoom into my Bible study church. And he said that he had registered for the program, and he tested um, at, I'm not sure if he's quite high enough, but we'll have to see, but he tested at, like, between 5 and 6 on one portion and 4 and 5 as far as English proficiency on the other. So he was going to send me what the information he got, but I'm going to have to contact some of the... Um, organizations that are working with that program in Canada and see if we can get him connected in. So that's what we're working on. That's the update for this week.
but anyway, um, I hope you have a great week coming up and um, hope you can do some good as well. So I will see you next time.